In this episode of Engineering Matters, we explore the life of one of the UK's greatest quantum physics pioneers, Professor Sir Peter Knight. It was still very much a, um, an exercise for, if you like, physics hobbyists. You know, we were doing it for fun, but it only slowly dawned on us that this has a applicability to things. So this funny entanglement, the correlations, the oddities about quantum systems that are changed through measurement, that became the basis for quantum information science later on. So we, we have communication systems that utilize it now. That's not what we expected at the beginning. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this episode starts in the early 1970s in the fashionable seaside town of Brighton. Here, the University of Sussex was developing a powerful reputation as a centre for scientific research and as a hotbed for live music. This was a time where music companies would use universities to promote bands and artists. And this new university in Brighton, which opened in 1961, hosted some of the biggest rock bands, not just of the time, but of all time. From Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd and Deep Purple, to The Clash, The Who and The Damned. And it was here that a young student called Peter Knight started a lifelong love affair with quantum physics. I remember uh, at the University of Sussex a really charismatic set of lecturers who I think encouraged me to, to think my own way through things as well because in those days um, we weren't quite so pressurised in terms of time. We could take time out with projects to develop our own uh, thoughts on what to do next. That was a great time to be around. Quantum physics intrigued Peter in what he describes as a time of great opportunity. The biggest breakthroughs were very recent and much work remained to be done. The subject had grown from the inability of classical physics to describe the radiative properties of light. Going back to the late 17th century, Dutch physicist Christian Huygens declared that light consisted of waves. Yet in 1704, Sir Isaac Newton postulated that light was made of particles. Newton's theory came to dominate until Thomas Young and his double-slit experiment of 1801 proved that light did indeed have wave-like properties. Classical physics could not explain this duality and it took more than a hundred years until someone finally could. The real breakthrough came with a light bulb in the late 19th century. Scientists struggled for years to understand why a heated object did not throw off light in the manner presumed by traditional physics theory. This was until German physicist Max Planck found a new way to explain radiative energy. He assumed that radiation was not emitted continuously and instead it was thrown off as packets of energy he called quanta. Using mathematical analysis and working with experimentalists to prove his theories, the law of radiation was published in 1900. Quantum physics was born. Throughout the 20th century, further exploration continued to explain quantum behaviour. Einstein's description of the photoelectric effect, where high-frequency light can displace electrons, won him the Nobel Prize, and Danish physicist Niels Bohr gave us a new understanding of atomic energy at a particular level. Bohr was the first to identify quantum jumps, where electrons move seemingly at random between atomic energy levels. 
by the 1960s, quantum physics had its own kind of rock star in theoretical physicist Richard Feynman, who widened the appeal of the subject. Your experience with things that you have seen before is inadequate, is incomplete. The behavior of things on a very tiny scale is simply different. They do not behave just like particles. They do not behave just like waves. Atoms do not behave like weights hanging on a spring and oscillating. Nor do they behave like miniature representations of the solar system with little planets going around in orbits. Nor does it appear to be somewhat like a cloud or fog of some sort surrounding a nucleus. It behaves like nothing that you've seen before. Well, there's one simplification, at least electrons behave exactly the same in this respect as photons. That is, they're both screwy, but in exactly the same way. <laughs> So what got me started was understanding the weirdness of it all. Um, when I was a student, I remember working on Richard Feynman's lectures on physics. And at one point he says, nobody understands quantum mechanics. And he's a master of this. So I thought, okay, well, if he says this, this means there's lots still to do. And that's a kind of challenge. For Peter, the biggest challenges and opportunities emerged from one single discovery. The first lasers were at the beginning of the 1960s. And for the first time, we had light that you could manipulate, you could use, it has coherence, brightness, and so on. And so there was this extraordinary new field where you could see great opportunities. There were still many fundamental things to understand, but it was immediately exploitable. And, and it was that that made me think, this is for me. And here began Peter's exploration of photonics. If you're moving around information, processing it, we had electronics moving around electrons. If you're moving around photons, using those as the information carriers and processors, then you call it photonics. Peter's early career focused on one of the most difficult concepts in quantum physics at the time, quantum entanglement. The rather peculiar properties of two quantum systems that have engaged with each other, and they, they have these peculiar correlations that are way beyond anything that's allowed classically. If I take these two things, um, I, I engage, I get them correlated, I separate them. The measurement on one enables you to infer what you might get as a result on the other one. Now that immediately generates some, some quite strange ideas about spooky interaction at a distance, whether you can communicate faster than light. None of that's true. You don't communicate faster than light, but it is extraordinary. So extraordinary that Peter and his colleagues were exploring this phenomena without knowing where it was going to take them. And, and it was still very much a, um, an exercise for, if you like, physics hobbyists. You know, we were doing it for fun, but it only slowly dawned on us that this has a applicability to things. So this funny entanglement the correlations, the oddities about quantum systems that are changed through measurement, that became the basis for quantum information science later on. So we, we have communication systems that utilize it now. That's not what we expected at the beginning. At the time, some of the most exciting work in quantum physics was happening in the US. And so Peter packed his bags and headed to the University of Rochester in upstate New York to work on quantum optics. 
going off to the United States, a great adventure, working with some of the great heroes of what became quantum optics. So if you take all the sort of light fields that we experience, all the time, you know, normal lighting in the room, sunlight, uh, and so on, um, it, 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 it's a, a very peculiar sort of light. It's completely noisy. You, you can think of that kind of light as just noise in the right frequency range that you can see with your eye, of course. What a laser is, is, is very monochromatic light, uh, and it's very bright, and you can do interesting things with it. But if I start to dim down the intensity, to lower and lower and lower, eventually you get to basically the, the fundamental particles of light. And they are really weird, because they behave simultaneously as particles, but then you can diffract them and interfere them, so they clearly have wave-like properties. So understanding that duality of wave-like properties and particle-like properties was a focal point of many of the things that we were trying to do. But three cold and snowy winters in New York were enough for Peter, and after his great adventure, he returned to the UK. Support for this episode comes from Metal Additive Manufacturing Magazine. Is there too much hype around 3D printing? Is additive manufacturing truly the next industrial revolution? Metal Additive Manufacturing Magazine has, over the last five years, reported on the rapid industrialisation of this industry, which today is making inroads in many areas of industrial production, from aerospace engines and gas turbines to bicycle components and simple fixtures and fittings. To discover the diverse processes, applications and opportunities presented by this technology, download the latest issue of Metal Additive Manufacturing Magazine at metal-am.com. When I came back to, to the UK, there were very few people interested in this sort of field. A handful of people. Um, we, we used to have national meetings of all the people working on it in my office. Upon his return, Peter was awarded an early fellowship from the UK government's Science Research Council. And it was a competitive fellowship. And it gave you the freedom to do whatever you wanted without any constraints or obligations to follow your own nose. What Peter wanted to do was understand much, much more about these packages of quantized energy that Max Planck had identified over a century earlier. He studied the photon, characterising its behaviour and what he described as its fluctuating quantum field. And one of the things that we had to uncover and to understand, along with a number of other people around the world, is that we had this fluctuating quantum field. So you're going to describe it by a probability distribution. Problem is that when you started to investigate these non-classical effects, those probabilities went negative. Now, when you talk to a statistician about a negative probability, if he's got any sense, he'll kick you out of the room. It is really freaky. The freakier things got, the more Peter was intrigued. We played with vehicles to look at that. I, I, I did a lot of work on what was called resonance fluorescence. The ability of atoms, usually single atoms, to interact with laser fields and scatter light. Later on, by the way, it became the heart of what was called laser cooling, the new generation of atomic clocks and so on. We didn't know that's what it was going to lead to. Applying radiation to an atom using lasers to manipulate the atom and get it to radiate led to a new understanding of the phenomena that we talked about earlier, the quantum jump. So one of the things that we started to play with, and I was really proud of that part of it, was understanding what was called quantum jumps this really weird jumping from one 
energy level in an atom to another, apparently at random. This is the area that uh, uh, many of the founders of quantum mechanics really found really quite distressing. This included Nobel Prize winning Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger, originator of quantum physics' most famous thought experiment, Schrödinger's cat. Schrödinger said that if a cat was placed in a box with radioactive material and a vial of cyanide, there was a 50% probability that the radioactive material would release an electron, which would in turn release the cyanide, killing the cat. But until the box is opened, and the cat observed, it could be alive and dead at the same time. And this state is called quantum superposition. So Schrödinger once said, um, if, if uh, the world is really like this, if we really have these quantum jumps, then I'm going to abandon the subject and go off into it. But unlike Schrödinger, Peter did not abandon the subject of quantum physics. By 1979, he'd moved from Royal Holloway to Imperial College, where he was to spend the next 30 years helping make enormously important discoveries with students and colleagues, from quantum cryptography to using atomic clocks for tracking stock market transactions. Key to many of the future applications of quantum physics and the photonics industry today was the work done at Imperial to improve the sensitivity of sources and detectors so that they could study single quantum systems. We were looking at, uh, at single quantum systems for the first time. Now that really was important. So if we looked at what we were trying to do with atoms interacting with, with light from a laser, we could cool the atoms down. We could make them almost stationary. We could trap them. You could do it right down at the single atom or ion level. And with increased precision in our technology, we could image it. This meant seeing quantum jumps for the first time. Why does it matter? Well, the next generation of atomic clocks utilize exactly this. Not only that, but it's the beginning of how we can build a row of single atoms or single ions for quantum information processing and quantum computing. It took the 1980s to give us the technology to be able to cool down, control and manipulate down the single quantum system. And this control is what's needed to enable quantum computing, which promises to be the greatest transformational development of the 21st century. Peter says that we are close. One of the horizon, if you like, moonshot visions that we have is to build a quantum computer. And it's extraordinarily hard because what we need to be able to do to build a quantum computer is to have all the component parts under complete control. So a register of quantum bits, instead of classical bits, quantum bits, lots and lots of them entangled together, being able to manipulate them to run an algorithm to read out the results and so on. It's really hard. But why would this be so transformational? Let, let's say we look inside your computer and you've got bits that are processing information and we'll, we'll work on a binary. We'll, we'll, we'll look at ones and zeros. And you can make a register, one, 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 right through to naught, naught, naught. In quantum physics, you can do something in addition. I can make a one and a zero. In quantum physics, it would be say an atomic spin up and an atomic spin down, that's easy. But you can do better than that. You can put it in a superposition of one and zero at the same time. In fact, we know we can because that's how atomic clocks work. 
and atomic clocks are what generate your GPS. All right, so we, we know we can do it. So let's imagine something really trivial. Let's imagine that I've got three quantum bits under complete control. So I can put the quantum bits in eight possibilities. Better than that, I can put that register into a superposition of all of those things, all eight possibilities simultaneously. Now let me do it with n. So now there are two to the n states. So let's imagine, and I've got a reason for choosing the number, 53 of these quantum bits. Now I've got two to the 53 states. Which is nine to the power 15. Suddenly, the state space that I can explore is huge. If I had a bit more than a thousand bits under complete quantum control, the state space is bigger than the number of particles in the visible universe. In other words, it's bigger than anything you could ever build classically. Trouble is, they're fragile. But that processing ability is um, extraordinary. And this is the approach behind Google's recent achievement with the Sycamore quantum processor, which, using 53 quantum bits, performed a calculation in 200 seconds that would have taken the world's best supercomputer 10,000 years to do. But as Peter says, controlling these quantum bits is really, really hard. And that's because the sensitivity of these quantum bits also makes them fragile. And the bigger the system, the more fragile it becomes. Horrendously fragile. But we can use that fragility to our advantage. So, for example, let's imagine that we had some of these cold atoms under control. We put them into these weird superpositions that quantum physics allows. They're incredibly sensitive to the outside of the environment. That's what you need from a sensor. So we could build new sensors that are based on this fragility. So en route to this big vision of quantum computer, we've already got the ability to pull things out at an earlier stage of economic advantage. And what that means is that we could measure electromagnetic fields around us. Now, does that matter? Well, one of the applications within a national program is to build a brain imager looking at the, the very tiny electromagnetic fields present from, from the way that your brain processes information. Now, if you think about the way you might want to do functional brain imaging at the moment, you put thing, people through these huge superconducting magnet tunnels. It's ferociously expensive. It's deeply scary if you ever go into one of these scanners. One of our visions is to produce a thing like a cycle helmet that will do the same thing. So creating an electromagnetic sensor sensitive to brain waves is one of the technologies that's emerging as scientists strive to take quantum physics into new areas. And this is what Peter's always tried to do, increase our understanding so that the weirdness of quantum physics can be put to good use. I found myself on a government advisory committee reporting to the then chief scientist, the government chief scientist. And at one point, we got an urgent summons for advice because automatic trading on the stock market had generated something called the flash crash, where many tens of billions evaporated on the stock market price in New York over really seconds. And at the time, the Chancellor Exchequer said, how are we going to stop automatic trading? And my response was, forget it. This is where the finance industry is moving to faster and faster trading. What we need to be able to do is to be able to timestamp in automatic trading 
all of the transactions, who did what in what order, so you could assign credit and blame proportionately. And that means that within the entire financial trading network, you need really, really smart clocks. Not the big primary ones that are the keepers of the second and the time standard, but secondary clocks that could timestamp. Peter says this was a real light bulb moment for politicians who realised that quantum technology could provide answers to serious problems. It meant that suddenly um, uh, these quantum geeks, maybe these guys are useful. Um, that, was, that was fun. At the same time, in 2010, the scientific community found itself with a real supporter in the newly appointed science minister, David Willits. And David Willits had realised that this, this emergent new field was moving from a science phase into the potential to do something about tech transfer. Bless him, he managed to get through the budget settlement resource for what became the National Quantum Technology Programme. And leading this programme from the Grade 1 listed Chichley Hall in the heart of Buckinghamshire is Professor Sir Peter Knight, who's also a Fellow of the Royal Society. The grand 17th century building is home to the National Quantum Technology Programme and it's also known as the Cavley Royal Society International Centre. When you come to Chichley Hall, it is a beautiful place, but there's not much to do here except talk to each other. And what we did is we corralled the main players, both in industry and in academia, and from government departments to work out who could do what over what timescales. Where was the economic advantage that we could exploit from these, these various steps that we could implement? That gave us our vision statement that formed the basis for the first five years of our national programme. And this programme, which has now become a 10-year, £1 billion investment programme, has put the UK at the global forefront of quantum physics-enabled technology. We were the first nation to really move in a coordinated way. And that was the secret of, 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 of doing this, of coordination, of how did you get people to work together, to surrender, if you like, their individual vision of what to do for a collective national vision. Beyond new types of sensors, Peter says that lots of other amazing technologies are emerging from the four hubs that form the research base of the national programme. The other thing you can do is to produce these cold atoms that are really sensitive in, in a clock sort of way to where they are. Now, one of the weird things that we've got about atomic clocks is that they are so sensitive, if I lift them a metre up, the tick rate changes because the gravitational field is different. This means we can measure gravitational variability with cold atoms, and this is leading to an investigation of what Peter calls the quantum underworld. It's really important to understand what's underneath our feet in civil engineering. If we could improve the ability to map the underground, if you like, um, you know, what's beneath us, say two, three meters, about a factor of two precision better, you can save billions. In imaging, we can build really smart cameras that use the timing of the way that you emit photons, they scatter, we redetect them again with the right sort of detectors. These cameras are great, they can see round corners. The application there is what I call driver assistance, not autonomous vehicles. Because if we build the right sort of sensors, it will tell you what's around the corner, where the curb is in bad weather, all those kinds of things. Enabling new technology has been at the heart of Peter's career, 
but inspiring young people, as he himself was inspired as an undergraduate at the University of Sussex, is one of his greatest achievements. I think it's the thing that I'm most proud of is the encouragement of the next generation to take the leadership. So I was able to attract people who've gone on to the most extraordinary careers of their own. I've got a number of uh, my former PhD students who were fellows of the Royal Society, who are professors, who have made major careers, not only here in the UK, but around the world. And I think that seeding the world with people as enthusiastic as I was about the opportunities and the new understandings you can generate is the thing that I'm most proud of. This includes the discovery of quantum cryptography by his former student Arthur Eckert, who's now a professor of quantum physics and cryptography at Oxford University. Um, Arthur worked with me on this non-classicality that I spoke of. He had a year to go with lots of funding, but he got enough for a PhD already so we could play. And he started to play with this entanglement idea and whether it could be used for secure communication. And he wrote the first paper that generated a new protocol for quantum cryptography. Now that was completely unexpected and it was the seed for what became an enormous field now. But at the time, it was a young person trying to understand something fundamental, having tremendous ability, but really much more importantly, having the freedom to do whatever he liked for a year. From supporting students like Arta to championing investment in quantum technology, Peter is internationally recognised as a leader in quantum science and engineering, leading the Institution of Engineering and Technology to award him their prestigious Faraday Medal in October 2019. I never thought that I would ever be recognised as an engineer, by the way. So getting the Faraday Prize from, from the IET was just unexpected and uh, I'm going to get teased quite a lot by my engineering colleagues. Um, I have tried really, really hard the last several decades to move stuff out of labs into things of value. So it's lovely to be recognised. It was an enormous surprise. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, produced by Ross McPherson, edited by John Young and the executive quantum producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our partner for this episode, the Institution of Engineering and Technology. The IET inspires, informs and influences the global engineering community to engineer a better world. As a diverse home across engineering and technology, the IET shares knowledge that helps make better sense of the world in order to solve the challenges that matter. The IET works to build the profile of engineering and technology to change outdated perceptions and tackle the skills gap. And of course, a special thanks to Professor Sir Peter Knight and the Cavalry Royal Society International Centre. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps from iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can listen to it on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. If you like our episodes, please leave us a fantastic review and share us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Reddit. Bye.